Thank you, Joey, for the big build-up. Insights and sentiments, but they're not mine, Joey. I hope they're not mine, because if all you've done is come here to listen to me, you're in big trouble. <laughs> the only thing I have to speak about, really, is the Word of God. So if there is any insight in what I offer tonight, it won't be mine. It won't be sort of my, my homespun wisdom. It will be, I hope, the Word of God, which in some sense is old but is always thrillingly new. The Word of God, as I suggested last time, presumes the breath of God, and I was thinking of the breath of God as we prayed and sang. The God of the Bible, in fact, is an extraordinarily breathy God. Last time I, I uh, introduced you to the very first sound of Scripture. Do you remember that? Many of you were here, I presume, last time. Perhaps some of you weren't. If you're here for the first time, welcome. But you'll remember, those of you who were here, that I said the very first sound in Scripture is simply <sighs> the Ruach, the breath of God. We know it's God. Breathing into the darkness across the waters of chaos. And when we say, come Holy Spirit, as we did in the song, we're asking God to breathe on us. And then we prayed that I, as the presenter, will be given inspiration. Very good prayer, that one. In other words, that God will breathe into me. So God breathes in the beginning, and then when God creates the human being, again, he picks up a lump of dirt, good rich soil, not just dirt, good rich soil and what does he do again? The famous story of the valley of the dry bones and the prophet Ezekiel. Again it's the spirit that breathes into the the valley of the dry bones and they stand up and they become beings of living flesh. When the disciples are cringing in an upper room locked because of fear, what does Jesus do? We're told in the Gospel of John he breathes on them again. It's exactly what God did in the beginning to create the human being. And I don't know what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. I wish we'd got a video of it, but we haven't. But one thing I do know is that in that dark tomb there was the sound of breath and the spirit breathing in the tomb raised Jesus from death to life. So you can see what I mean when I say that the God of Scripture is a very breathy God who has breathed into us, not just upon us, but into us. Now, because we are creatures of earth, that's what Adam means, Adam is not a name, it's a description of the earth creature, the, earth, the one taken from the earth but bearing the breath of God. I said last time, and this is crucial, the first few pages of Scripture are absolutely fundamental. Every page of Scripture looks back to these early pages that I'm exploring both tonight as I did last time. So I make no apologies for spending a lot of time and energy on these first few pages of Scripture in the garden and just outside because tonight I announce to you now we're leaving the garden, but not too quickly, because in these early pages of Scripture you have the foundation for everything that follows in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
What I mean by those words will be more apparent at the end of this session. The human being then, and this is revolutionary. See again, to live biblically in a secular world is to live a revolution. And again, if you don't think that, you haven't really read the scripture. And I suggested last time, and I simply repeat it here as we begin again, that the understanding of the human being that you find on these first pages of scripture is revolutionary. The standard answer to the question, why did God bother to create the human being? What are you human being? Was, I said last time, I'll say it again now, you're a slave. Get used to it. Once a slave, always a slave. Abandon hope all you who enter here. That's the logic of Pharaoh. In the scripture, however, we see God who calls us into his own creativity. It says, human being, name the creature. It's a very simple thing to ask, but the implications of this are vast and revolutionary. The human being is a creature. You're not God, more of which in a moment. You're a creature. But to say that you're a creature doesn't mean to say that you're nothing, just a lump of dirt because you bear the breath of God. And as a creature who bears the breath of God, you are called by the Creator into the circle of his creativity to work with God in the great task of ordering the chaos, bringing light out of darkness, fullness out of emptiness, according to the very beginning of the biblical story. Now, against that background, I come to the story of the fall and as I do I repeat the fundamental claim that I made last time that this stuff is your life. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's once upon a time. If you do that you will never feel and know the power of the biblical word. I know it was written a long time, I could tell you a lot about when it was written, how it was written, why it was written, but forget all that stuff, the archaeology of the text. What we're about is, is its power for us now. What's it, what's it saying about you? See, every Sunday up here we read the scripture, at the end of it we say, the word of the Lord, which is a very nice thing to say, but what's it mean? It means basically the interpretation of the Lord. Because that's what language does, that's what words do, they interpret. Interpret what? Us to ourselves. You see, God understands the fact that we are, we are often adrift on a, a kind of a morass of our own uncertainties, our own ignorance, our own ambiguities. We don't know what things mean. We need an interpreting word that we can't provide for ourselves. God understands that and therefore speaks to us an interpreting word. And if we call the whole of scripture the word of God, it's saying this is God's gift of interpretation to us in our confusions, ignorances and ambiguities. So don't panic if you feel uncertain, ignorant and all that stuff. God is the God who communicates to lead us beyond that. And that's what the scripture's all about. So this is your life. And it is about living biblically, therefore. It's not just about knowing the scripture in some intellectual sense. That, that can be important. But, but much more important is to live this stuff. 
And that, that's our overarching question in these sessions. What does it actually mean to say, live biblically? It doesn't mean reducing the Bible to a list of moral do's and don'ts, a kind of list of prescriptions. No, no, it's, it's deeper and much more comprehensive, powerful and wonderful than that sense of the scripture. Just a, a book full of do's and don'ts. We're on about much more than that. Or well, God is in his communication to us now and here. All right, now. The glory of the creature created in the image and likeness of God, called by God to be a co-creator, no slaves. This creature encounters the mysterious figure of the serpent. Now I have been thinking about the snake for many years and I still can't work him out. See, first of all, I find it disappointing that there's a snake in the garden at all. Wouldn't you think that God would do in paradise what St. Patrick did in Ireland? Get rid of them. It's a, it's a strange thing, this, and I don't know why God allows a snake to be there, but he's there and he's trouble. The other thing is that this is, this is a talking snake. Francis the talking snake. <laughs> you see, according to the Bible, the human being is drawn into the creativity of God most deeply and powerfully at two points in particular. The first is language. See, animals can go bow wow and meow and moo. They can make noises, but animals can't talk. I don't care what you say about whales. Animals can't talk. They can't do, produce the miracle of speech that I am producing in your presence right now. They can't do it. The other point, according to scripture, where we share most deeply in the creativity of God is sexuality. Animals can rut. They don't have to be taught. They can do it very effectively. But they cannot enter into sexuality as that imaginative and spiritual experience of self-giving that is unique to the human being. So those two points, language and sexuality, we are called most deeply into the creativity of God, which implies, just by the way, that to live biblically in a secular age is to get your language right and your sexuality right, and both are hard, particularly in a secular culture that often gets both of them wrong, where language becomes a lie. See, the Bible is, is unusually sensitive to darkened language, in other words, language that becomes lying. The Bible takes lying very seriously. Words that destroy and do not create. And the Bible also takes very seriously, we'll see this in a moment, darkened sexuality. Sexuality that is a kind of violence, where I take you for me, I don't give me for you. Now, against that background, which is important background just by the way, you have an, a snake who talks. So this is some kind of creature caught between animal and, and, and human being. 
I think the mysteriousness of the serpent is all about the mysteriousness of the source of evil. Where does evil come from? This is one of the fundamental questions the Bible is, is grappling with here. So you can't say God is the source of evil. You can't say that. And you can't say the human being is the source of evil. It's not native to us. It didn't come from us. We, we are seduced by it, as we shall see. But in the end, the Bible can't answer the question, where does evil come from? All it gives us is this intensely mysterious figure of the serpent. Now, so in other words, the Bible is quite open, in, well, in a sense open, about what it doesn't or can't know. The limits of human knowing. One thing we do know about this, this snake is, is it's he's very urbane, very respectful. He doesn't start off with a sledgehammer speech. How does he start off with a very a, a respectful question? Excuse me, did God say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Is that what God said? Um, the woman said, yes, that is, we made of the fruit of the trees of the garden, pretty well all of them, there's a lot of them in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, not even touch it, because if you do, you will die. Now, in the middle of the garden, there are two trees in the Bible. One is the tree of life, but that's not the tree right in the middle of the garden. The tree that's right in the middle of the garden for the Bible is the tree of knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil, and that's the one they're told not to touch. And if you touch the tree of knowledge and eat its fruit, you will be denied access to the tree of life. Now, in all the comparable pagan stories, you find the tree of life. But it's only in the Bible that you find, bang in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you see the essential difference between God and the human being for the Bible is not at the point of life, but at the point of knowledge. Let me explain. In the pagan world, the fundamental difference between the gods and the human being was that the gods lived forever. Apart from that, they're just like us. They're as imperfect morally and they don't know everything. In the Bible, the fundamental difference between God and us is not mortality or immortality, it's knowledge. Only God knows everything, not even Google. Only God knows everything and the human being does not know everything. In particular, only God knows what is good and what is evil. Insofar as I claim that knowledge, I decide what is good, I decide what is evil for myself. I claim to be God. 
So what God is saying is if you claim to be God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that will be for you a, a, a condemnation of yourself to a kind of death. In claiming to be God, you will in fact die. You may seek the fullness of life, but you will find its opposite. And this is exactly what you will see happen in the story of the fall that we're about to read now. Onto the lips of the serpent, there is placed what I would call the catechesis of evil. Because evil does have its own catechesis. And it can be a very powerful and effective catechesis. Basically, there are two elements of the catechesis of evil. Let's see what they are. The woman quotes God by saying, we can't touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we'll die if we do. See, again, God's worried. He doesn't want them to die. They weren't created to die. Death is not native to the human being. Don't be fooled into thinking that. Death is not native to the... You're going to die, you might be surprised to learn. None of us will get out of this alive. But you weren't created for death. Death is a foreign body, according to scripture. So too is sin. You weren't created to sin. You do, I know. So do I. But we weren't created to sin. It's not native to the human being. And that's why we call Jesus Christ, or the New Testament does, the sinless one. Not saying, wasn't he a beautiful person? It's got nothing to do with that. What it's saying is he is the fullness of the human being as God intended us to be. That's what the claim of the sinlessness of Jesus means. In him we see the fullness of what God intends the human being to be. So neither sin nor death, which are, death is the masterstroke of sin. Because we sin, we die, according to scripture. But neither of them is, is native to the human being, neither was part of the plan of God when we had the breath of God breathed into us. They're foreign bodies. All right. So God doesn't want them to die. So don't, tr don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I don't want you to... He's worried about them, not his tree. And here comes the serpent, the first element of the catechesis of evil. You will not die. What's the first element? What's the first thing the serpent says about God? God's a liar. God has said you will die, you will not die. He's a liar. In other words, God's word is a lie. It's dark, deceptive and destructive according to the catechesis of evil. Don't believe him. And yet what have we seen in Genesis 1-2? God said light and there was light. The word of God is supremely light-filled, trustworthy and creative. Take your pick, human being. Who do you believe? What you've seen and heard from God or what the serpent 
now claims, God is a liar, dark, deceptive, destructive. God's word, you will not die. So there you see the first element. Now as much as way back then. Let's have a look at the second element. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil. So what is this God? First of all, God is a liar. That's element one. Element two, God's not only a liar, God is an oppressor. God's keeping you down. Break free and you too can be God. Isn't that dazzling? I mean, wouldn't you like to be God for a week or even a day? Just think of what you could do. So there are the two elements of the catechesis of evil. God is a liar and God is an oppressor. What have we seen about this God? No oppressor created us and called us to be a co-creator, created us of a, as a creature possessed of a unique and magnificent dignity. This is no oppressor we have seen and yet that's the claim of the catechesis of evil. So human being, I know it's Eve but it's you, which way are you going to go? Are you going to believe the serpent or are you going to believe what we have been told of God? Is he a liar? An oppressor? Fundamental decision to be made. Let's see how we go. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is true, it's always seductive. See, sin is always urbane like the serpent. It creeps up on you. Did God say? Evil doesn't hit you in the face first up, according to scripture. It kind of creeps up on you, like a snake. Uh, and is seductive. I mean, who of us does not know the seductive power of evil? Again, it's a deeply mysterious thing, but it's undeniable. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, beautiful fruit, and that it was a delight to the eyes, perfect, seductive. And here we go, the tree was desired to make one wise, like God, knowing. She took of the fruit and ate. So what's the decision? I think I'll back the catechesis of evil. God's a liar. God's an oppressor. I want to be God. So I'm going to eat that fruit. And she does. So do I. But I love the next bit. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. I mean, how dumb can you be? He doesn't say, where'd you get that fruit? He just said, that's a beautiful mango. And chomps straight into it. The Bible just, by the way, is really funny, funny. Ha ha. 
but the whole of scripture is suffused with a kind of sly irony and we often miss it. It's the kind of sly irony, by the way, that you often sense in Jewish humour to this day. So there aren't many laughs in the Bible, but the whole thing is suffused with a kind of irony. Now, irony is a fascinating form of uh, human discourse. It depends upon a tension between what, what seems to be and what is. A two-tiered view of reality, as they say. And it's typical of the scripture. Things are not what they seem to be. And if the Bible calls you on a journey, as it does, and more of the journey in a minute, it's a journey out of the world of what seems to be into the world of what is. Okay, more of which as we move along through these sessions. So poor old dumb Adam just takes the mango and goes chomp. No questions asked. And then we're told that the eyes of both were open. They, they come to a kind of knowledge, but not the knowledge they sought. It's a kind of a dark knowledge. And what's the first symptom of the darkness? They knew that they were naked. The sense of shame before their physical nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. So a sense of shame is the first and the shame about the body and the so-called private parts. A darkening at that point is the first symptom of fallenness. It wasn't the way it was meant to be. It wasn't the plan of God. The Bible then, in ways that fascinate and baffle even the depth psychologists in the post-Freudian era, goes on to give us a number of other symptoms of our fallenness. So let's just have a look at what they are. The first of them. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And what do they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Could you imagine anything more stupid than to hide from the God who has created you, called you into the circle of his creativity, endowed you with a unique and magnificent dignity, and you run off and hide. We all do it, but it's so dumb. We're hiding from everything that we most desire, everything we most need. What are they hiding from? Again, it's fear in this darkened world, but fear of the very thing or the very one whom we should least fear. And here comes, this is epic what comes now. I love these simple touches that echo off into some vast cosmos. The very first question placed on the lips of God comes now. Now, I'll let you in on a secret. In the Bible, God always knows everything. So too does Jesus in the New Testament. Therefore, if God asks a question, it's not because God doesn't know the answer. Who doesn't know the answer? We don't know the answer. So that when God asks a question, it, it's effectively a summons to the human being to come out of ignorance into the knowledge which God already has. 
So what's the very first question placed over the whole of Scripture? Where are you? Now what's the force of the question? It's not which banana tree are you hiding behind? Come out of there. <laughs> Wherever you are. As if God doesn't know where they are physically. It's not about where they are physically. The force of the question is as it were metaphysical. What do I mean by that? The force of the question is this. Human being, where are you in the scheme of things? Place yourself. Are you God? as you have tried to be, because there is the root sin, the original sin of the human being. We want to be God. That, that's the root sin from which everything, every other sin comes. And you see it spectacularly in these mass murderers of history like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, God knows who else. That sense of themselves as, as divine. The Egyptian pharaoh was God. The Roman emperor wasn't regarded as God but as divine. Which is a way of saying that the Roman state, totalitarian, was itself divine. Like the Nazi state of Germany. Or Stalin's rut, all the totalitarianisms. So the root sin is you and I, we want to be God. So where are you in the scheme of things, human being? Are you God? You've tried to be, but you're going out backwards. You've reached up for one thing and you're going to find yourself plunged into the exact opposite and don't say you weren't warned. Are you God or are you nothing? Because you see, that's really what the serpent has implied. If you're not God, you're nothing. And you see, in the depth of your being, you know that you're not nothing. You know that you are something. So you're not God. You're not nothing. You are a creature, but possessed of a unique and magnificent dignity given to you by the Creator. You're not God. You're not nothing. That's what you are. So where are you, human being? place yourself in the scheme of things and insofar as we get our place in the scheme of things right we are home in paradise in the world of right relationship more of which in a moment so that question echoes through the whole of scripture and stands over the entrance into the biblical world that we are moving through now where are you and we will only have the ultimately right answer to that question when Jesus Christ rises from the dead. Easter is the final, is the fullness of an answer to that great question. And here we get, here, here is Adam, the earth creature. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was, what's the word? Afraid. See, in this dark, fallen world, what is the dominant experience? It's fear. I was afraid of you because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, here comes another question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree 
of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, who knows the answer to the question? God knows. God knows everything always. In other words, he's summoning the human being to say, yes, I have sinned. To accept responsibility. And what happens? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So what's the next symptom of fallenness? Blame her. Wasn't me, it was her. And anyway, you gave her to me, so in some sense you're to blame. Don't blame me. It's not my fault. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, well, it is familiar. So another symptom of fallenness is the refusal to accept responsibility and to name my own sin. And yet it's the one thing that has to happen. Let's have a look how the woman goes, whether she does any better. The Lord God said to the woman, What have you done? Give it a name. Just as you named the creature, you name your sin now. Her reply? The serpent beguiled me and I ate. She's as bad as he is. It wasn't my fault. It's a serpent. And you created the serpent. So it's your fault. Same deal. It's as it were in the DNA of the fallen human being. Blame someone else. It wasn't me. Then you get the the long speech from God. talks about death and and the pain of childbearing and and the the, uh, darkened and violent relationship between man and woman, evidence of which is all around us, and so on. Um, then we have the account of the, the exile from the garden. It's not God saying, get out of here. This is a self-exile. A free decision by the human being that leads to a kind of self-exile from our true home, which is the garden. Now, this is something that we forget. You were made for the garden. You're not desert creatures. We are in the desert, even in Brisbane. I know it's beautiful. But we are out in the desert. And sometimes we can think this is home. Well, it's not. You were made for the desert, for the garden, not the desert. As they go to leave the garden and enter the desert... God takes one last look at them. And this is a beautiful touch. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife leather garments and clothed them. As they leave the garden, this is God's last gesture. Is he kicking them out? He doesn't want to see them again. It's like a mother sending her children off to school. He takes one look at those fig leaves and says they won't be enough out there in the desert. So he sits down with his sewing box 
and makes them good, strong leather garments that they will need out there. So the last gesture of God as they leave their home, the garden, which is their true home, the garden of God's ecstasy, is to make them the garments they will need on the journey. Okay? So this is not a, a God who cuts off dialogue, a God who's lost interest, kicks them out, doesn't want to see them again. This is a God who is extraordinarily tenacious in the divine purpose. And if scripture attests to anything, it is the baffling and, 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 and magnificent determination of God to bring us home to the garden. And from now on, the whole of scripture will have that as, as its rhythm. It's the story of the human being's return home to paradise. But you see, what has led to the departure from the garden? It's exactly the sort of thing that you see in the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son, the young, younger son is looking for the right thing in the wrong place. The human being has a genius for this. The young son, when he takes the money and runs, he looks for freedom, life. Get out of this boring old household. And where does he end up? He ends up in a pigsty. Looks for one thing in the wrong place and finds the opposite. Here is the human being having reached up for Godhead, divinity. I want to be God. Finding ourselves exiled from the garden. It's, it's the logic of sin and it's the work of evil. We look for the right thing but in the wrong place. The first story of the human being outside the garden is nothing if not decisive. So can I take you there just for a moment? It's the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. But again, it's, it's our story. Outside the garden, there's life, and there's life in abundance, it would seem, because no sooner does Eve have her first baby than she has her second baby. So all is not lost. It may be the land of death, but in the land of death, there is also a power of life that comes from God. So again, they're not abandoned out in the desert. So Eve has her first child and she says, the words are fascinating, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Who's she focusing on? I. God helps me. She's got it the wrong way around. In fact, she helps God. She starts with I. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So she's got a long way to go on the way back to the garden. Again she bore her, his brother Abel. Now notice he's called his brother. Why do we know that? Why, why does the scripture say his brother Abel? To underscore the whole thing of, of brotherhood which will become so central to this story. Let's read on. Years later, Abel was looking after sheep and Cain was growing crops. And in the course of time, Cain, the older boy, growing the crops, brought 
to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So an offering to God from his crops. And we're told Abel brought the firstborn of his flock to the Lord. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard at all. Now doesn't that seem unjust? See, the Bible rubs your nose in the fact that God often seems unjust. Because God does. See, the Bible doesn't let you off the hook. It's the most realistic literature you will ever strike. It rubs your nose in the fact that in this world God often seems unjust. Seems. Again, you've got a journey out of the world of seems into the world of what is. Because God is always just. And the Bible in many ways represents what they call a theodicy, which in other words is a justification of God, a demonstration that despite all the evidence to the contrary, God is in fact just. See, what's going on here? Abel, we're told, brings the firstborn of his flock. Cain only brings a gift. What's the difference? In ancient Israel, you had to present the first fruits the firstborn, the first fruits of the crop, the firstborn of your flock. Why? A recognition that everything was a gift from God. Nothing was mine. Everything came from God to me as a gift. And the symbolic recognition of that was to give the firstborn or the first fruits. Abel does that and recognises that God alone is God and is the source of all gifts. Cain gives God a gift which he claims as his own. It's mine, but I'm going to give it to you. This is pagan religion. At the heart of pagan religion, there's the old logic of what they call, if I might use the Latin, do ut des. I give you something, but in order that you give me something. What, who's the focus of pagan religion? Not God, me. I give God something that is mine in order to get something from God for me. The, the, the logic of the religion of ancient Israel is ex exactly the opposite. I, I return to God that which came from God and belongs to God. It's not mine. Right relationship is to see God as the giver of all gifts. I have nothing. I am a beggar. I can only receive the gift and acknowledge God as the giver. So the, the difference between Cain and Abel is between right and wrong religion. A religion which is right focusing upon God. A religion that is wrong focusing upon me, 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 me. Cain was very angry and his face fell. If you're caught up in that world that Cain is caught up in, me, 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 I give so that you give, what are you going to experience? Anger? Yeah? And it's... Uh, dark ally, they say his countenance fell. What would we say in more contemporary idiom? He was depressed. Anger and depression are, are dark bedfellows. So anger and depression. And Cain's blaming God. You did this. You created this anger and depression in me. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you depressed? God knows the answer. Cain doesn't. Come on, Cain, work it out. Why are you angry? Why are you depressed? 
Come out of ignorance into the knowledge that I have already and want to share with you. Cain doesn't reply to God. God talks to him. No reply. But he acts. Cain said to Abel, his brother. You see how Abel is again described as his brother? Let's go out into the field. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See, in other words, according to scripture, when you get it wrong between you and God, you always get it wrong between yourself and other human beings. Uh, It's just a cast iron logic. Get it wrong with God, you'll get it wrong with others. Get it wrong with others, you'll get it wrong with God. Right relationships got to move vertically and horizontally. Then the Lord said to Cain, see, God's still pursuing the conversation. Won't give up. This is another mighty question that relates to that first question we saw earlier. Where is Abel, your brother? Again, it's not a question of where have you put the body. And God's question here even provides a prompt. Where is Abel, your brother, in the scheme of things? Is he your mortal enemy whom you have struck down? What have you done? Oh no. Then again, the famous reply. I do not know. He's trying to be smart, but he's speaking the truth. He doesn't know. Caught in a dark world of ignorance. He doesn't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? No, you're not, Cain. You're not your brother's keeper. God is. You are your brother's brother. That's what Cain has to discover, what it means to be brother. You're not your brother's keeper. Your brother's murderer, in fact. But you have to discover that you are your brother's brother. What have you done, says God? Name your sin. Exactly the same as the the conversation with the parents. Name your sin. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, and so on it goes. And Cain then replies finally to God, my, look how he starts with, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day. Is he blaming God? You've driven me this day away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will slay me. Who's he focused on? Me, 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 me. It's seven times in the Hebrew. And seven has a special force in biblical language. Like his mother caught in the world of me. Self-absorption. And he's blaming God. And God just comes back straight at him and says, you're wrong. I've done nothing to you. In fact, I'm going to put on you the mark of Cain. Sometimes we think the mark of Cain is all about punishment. In fact, it's about protection. I will put a a mark on Cain, lest anyone who comes upon him should kill him. 
So here's God still reaching out to embrace this poor, pathetic, self-absorbed creature. And here comes the crunch, and here I finish. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, went away, and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, the word Nod in Hebrew has nothing to do with having a snooze. The word Nod in Hebrew means wandering. And Cain has already said, I shall be a wanderer on the earth. He goes off to dwell in the land of wandering, east of Eden. Now at this point, and it's a critical point in the whole of the biblical story, the challenge to Cain and to the human being is to turn all our wandering into journeying. What's the difference? When you wander, you don't know where you're going, like the explorers in the middle of Australia in the early years. They went round and round and round, wandering, thinking they were journeying, but they weren't. They went round and round and round until they just died and got lost in the sands of the desert. To turn all our wandering, and the question the scripture poses to us is, how do we wander? In what sense are you a wanderer? dwelling in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And what might it mean for your wandering to become journeying? See, journeying, you know where you're going. Sense of purpose, sense of direction, a goal. And for the scripture from now on, the difference between wandering and journeying is wandering, you just get nowhere, or you go back to Egypt. Journeying is the journey home to paradise. So the whole of the biblical story, and I'll pick it up from here next time, the whole of the biblical story now is about the return to paradise, the coming home of the human being. In many paintings of the Annunciation, you look through Mary's window and there is a garden. And what garden is it? It's paradise. It's even got peacocks in it sometimes. Because once Mary says yes to the angel, we're on our way home. But it's only when Jesus rises from the dead that the human being is finally home. Jesus rises in a garden. You know the great story of John's Gospel where Mary Magdalene meets him and thinks he's the gardener? Which garden is that? It's paradise. He's the first one home to paradise. But only the first of many brothers and sisters. Who's the second one home to paradise? His mother. That's what the assumption means. She's the second one home to paradise. I can't think of a better pick. But where they have gone, everyone is called to follow. Not to wander but, but to, to journey. And in speaking of journey, I touch upon the root metaphor of the whole of Scripture. And it's there that I shall resume this reflection when next we gather. Thank you.